Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we are meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. may be seated. As you are, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We just have three more sermons in our summer series on the grandeur of God. Today we're going to be looking at our God is the righteous and the just one. The righteous and the just one. And we're going to be taking up a passage in Genesis chapter 18, the context of which is that Abraham has just offered hospitality to three men who came to him, one of whom is the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, and the other are two angels. And we pick it up after the hospitality and after the renewal of the promise to Sarah that she is going to have a child next year, the promised child. And beginning in verse 16 of chapter 18, the Bible says this, Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am who but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, O Lord, be not angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, O let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Uh, Suppose there are 10 found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his 
place. That's the word of the Lord. Our God in heaven, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are our God, and you are the same God as is being revealed to us in this passage. And so I pray that today as we come under this word, that you would accomplish your divine purpose for bringing this passage to us and for bringing us to this passage, that we would follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham and be found faithful in the matters of the covenant because you are first faithful to the covenant yourself. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and amen. We are here in this passage on the eve of the destruction of Sodom and the cities on the plain. And as we are on the eve of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham cries out a question that is actually a confession. Look at verse 25. This confession that is framed as a question, Abraham says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You see, this question is actually a confession of faith that's coming from Abraham. It's a confession of faith in the unchanging, righteous character of God. That what our God does, listen church, what our God does is an outgoing of who he always is. Because our God is righteous, he does righteous. Because our God is just, he does just things. Because our God is holy, everything he does is holy. In other words, the outgoing of everything that God does is because of who he is, which means we can throw everything on it. You get that? There is nothing that cannot be thrown upon this God. And Abraham knows that, and so he throws everything on it. And so the question before us, as we are witnessing the destruction of so many things in our own day, as we are witnessing destruction globally, as we are witnessing destruction nationally, as we are witnessing destruction locally, the question for us is, will we, like Abraham, our father, throw everything on our God, who is the same God because Abraham is our father? And will we throw everything on this God in the same way that Abraham does, you see? Because as Rolando just read, Abraham is our father in the faith, and it's the same God who justifies Abraham that justifies us. And so the way in which Abraham throws these things on God or the way that we can throw these things on God because God is righteous and he only does righteous things. God is just and he only does just things. And so we begin looking this morning by acknowledging the context of the covenant that's going on here. Let's begin in verse 16, the men set out for Sodom. Those are two angels. Abraham goes out to set them on their way, but the angel of the Lord stays back for Abraham. 
And then God says, the Lord says this in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? You see, we have here, church, an acknowledgement of the covenantal friendship that God has with Abraham and the obligations that come with that friendship. The Bible tells us that Abraham is the friend of God. And what do you do with friends? You tell them what's going on, right? You let them inside the secret things, right? You tell things to friends, well, before the stupidity of social media, we told things to friends that we didn't tell to anybody else, but now we tell the world for some unknown reason, all right? But back when things were the way they should be, you just, you let friends in on things. You let those close to you in on things. And listen, church, this is the amazing thing about what's happening here is that Abraham is a friend of God, so God's going to let Abraham in on what he's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham is his friend, you see. But you know what? God has more friends than Abraham because according to Jesus in John 15, Jesus says this, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends. I call you my friends. So we stand in the same covenantal friendship relationship with God that Abraham did by faith, you see. And so God is not going to withhold from Abraham this. He's going to tell this to Abraham. And of course, Abraham plays this important role. Verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Because God's going to display his righteousness and justice with respect to the way that nations are to be. Okay? You guys do realize that we are before Sinai here, many, many years before Mount Sinai, many, many years before the law is written on the Ten Commandments, and yet God is holding Sodom and Gomorrah accountable to his standards. They have no excuse because Sinai hasn't happened yet, you see. And so because God is going to make a great nation of Abraham, He wants Abraham to know what righteousness looks like in a nation. He wants Abraham to know what justice looks like in a nation. And he wants Abraham to know what happens when unrighteousness takes over a nation and God comes to judge nations because nations are going to come from Abraham because of the nation that's going to come from Abraham. And so the nation that's going to come from Abraham needs to know the righteousness and justice of God so that it will order itself rightly. And the nations that come from Abraham need to know the righteousness and justice of God so they order themselves rightly. And they also need to know the judgment upon God from God when they do not order themselves rightly. And so God's going to open this up to Abraham. And this is important for us because we are that remnant. The church is that remnant today that God opens these things up to. But church, with this comes some responsibilities. And so parents, I want you to listen. Children, I want you to listen. And youth, I want you to listen. Because God tells Abraham the way in which nations become righteous. God tells Abraham the way in which righteousness comes in, you see. 
It first begins in the context by Abraham believing God, which happens in chapter 15. It's renewed in chapter 17. Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness as Rolando already read. But the righteousness credited, listen, also becomes the standard for the righteousness lived. In other words, just because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us, it does not mean we are off the hook with regard to living righteous lives, you see. So this is very important that we understand this. And so I want you to see what Abraham, what God tells Abraham about how these things come about. How it is that we get righteous nations and the nations are going to be righteous. First, by trusting in God, like Abraham did, but then this, verse 19, for I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. You see, church, there is a covenantal obligation and duty that Abraham the dad has to his children that Abraham the father has to his household. This is the way God works. This is the way God has always worked covenantally through households. So children, listen. Youth, listen. Parents, listen. Okay? Because I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, and I told my wife, I I know after this sermon, I'm gonna have to offer my resignation. It's good to go, I got it. I wrote it out last night, I'm gonna offer it to you at the end, all right? But we're so consumed with when it comes to our children about the next wave they catch, about the next soccer goal they score, about the next flip they do on the skateboard, the next football pass they make, the next grade they get in school, the next pair of cool clothes they have before the world, the way that our children look before the world. We are so obsessed with the trivial, and we are raising our children to prize the trivial that we wouldn't know what this passage looked like if it slapped us upside the face sometimes. Look at what the Bible says. I have chosen Abraham, that, listen to this, that he may command his children, not suggest to his children. Here, children, here's a smorgasbord. You choose. No! Abraham is in a position of authority with respect to his children. He has a responsibility to his children. And he is to command his children, you see. He is to command his children. Which means, children, your parents have actual God-established authority in your life to not make suggestions that they hope you will live a righteous life. They have the authority from God to command you inside of a faith covenant to obey God, to pursue righteousness, and to flee youthful lusts, to not be concerned about yourself and your self-love and how you look to everybody else and whether or not the world accepts you and whether or not you're the best athlete or the best student. At the end of the day, what matters is that we teach our children to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith and to pursue a righteous life regardless of what everybody else thinks. Do you agree with this, parents? Do you understand that, there, that this is on you to do this? 
To command your children to what? Keep the way of the Lord. Is that the burning passion of your soul as a parent? That your children at the end of the day, when they walk from your house, they are keepers of the way of the Lord. And that's more important than anything else. Nothing else matters as a parent, but that your children walk in the faith. Is that your heart as a parent? Do you orientate everything in your home around this? You see, this is what we're called to do. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? By doing Righteousness. Well, that's, that's moralism. It's not moralism to pursue righteousness. It's moralism to try to be saved by your own righteousness. Abraham's already saved by the righteousness of Jesus here. So God is commanding him to pursue righteousness because he has a righteousness. You see, I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm just kidding. I am so burdened for this as we come into the school year. I'm so burdened for this as we, we live in a, in a world that is literally trying to combine Orwell and Huxley and the worldviews that come from those into the seduction of the hearts of our children to want to pursue everything but God and His ways. And parents, they're supposed to learn this from you. And it's supposed to come by way of commands, not suggestions. It's not, it's not supposed to come by way of I hopes. It's supposed to come by way of you rightfully using the authority that God has given you in your home to lead your family in the ways of righteousness. And this is what God himself is saying in the context of God about to judge a, a nation or these cities that do not have this there. The angst at hand, after we acknowledge the covenant, the angst at hand is that this is not happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. This is the angst. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Church, I want you to see that God doesn't play lightly with sin. Look at what it says. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very great. This is God speaking. This is the Lord speaking. And he is saying that the sin of Sodom and the other cities on the plain are very grave sins. Do we even speak that way? Do we ever speak of sins being very grave? Worthy for the inspection of God to lead to the judgment of God and the fire burning of these cities? But this is what's happening here. And, and, and you say, well, what, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, for some reason, this is causing me a great headache. Um, sorry. Just back a little bit. Yeah, thank you. All right. I feel like I'm going to swallow it. No. So, sorry. You got a little break there from the justice. Um, 
The angst at hand is grave sin, and I want you to listen to this. It's very, very interesting, okay? In Ezekiel, we are told what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, okay? Ezekiel 16, we're told that the sin of 49 and 50, that the sin of Sodom that is going to bring the judgment of God is pride, prosperity, a refusal to regard the poor. Let's, start, let's just start right there. We all think that the, the only sin going on in Sodom that would bring God's judgment was the sin of homosexuality and the perversion sexually that's going on there. And that is true. That, that place was absolutely, literally aflame with homosexual perversion. But that's not, but in the book of Ezekiel, when God is saying, listing the sins that brought his judgment on Sodom, he doesn't just list homosexual perversion. He lists a prideful people, a prosperous people who are not thankful to the God for their prosperity and a refusal to help the poor and then, and then the, uh, the sin of immorality. Those are, those are the sins that are bringing God's just judgment down. The, these are the sins that God considers to be very grave, okay? Very grave. Pride, prosperity without gratitude, not taking care of the poor, and sexual immorality. These are the four sins that God considers to be very grave enough to bring about the absolute destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord himself sends two witnesses because he's going to verify this on the presence of two witnesses. So he sends the two angels ahead of him. Because when we read this, it's like, doesn't God already know that these things are going on? Well, of course he does. But he, now listen to this. This is very important. God wants Abraham to know that God's justice is in accord with what he reveals. And so if he says it's based on the testimony of two witnesses, God's going to send two witnesses. God's going to send, and God's going to go down himself and find out whether or not these things are so. In other words, God's going to conduct a full-on investigation of Sodom, a full-on investigation of Gomorrah, a full-on investigation of these cities on the plain to see whether or not the outcry that's coming up is actually true of them so that his justice actually meets the sin, you say. But we live in a world that doesn't believe that any sin merits any justice. We live in a world that doesn't believe sin is very grave. And church, we cannot be seduced into this because we know how grave sin actually is because we know it led Jesus to a grave. Right? We know that God wouldn't just over bypass sin, that he had to deal with it in the cross of his son. And so we have, we acknowledge the covenantal context, we, we see the angst that's going on, and then that moves us to the Abrahamic moment. Notice I'm doing all A's. The acknowledgement of the covenant, the angst, and now the Abrahamic moment. See that? I've worked really hard for you guys uh, to get all A's, all right? The Abrahamic moment begins in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now I need you guys to understand something here. Every commentator worth his salt loses his mind at verse 22. And I do not understand why the Bible translations know what they know and do what they do. 
But, the, but many of the sound exegetical commentaries get this right because the Hebrew doesn't read this way, and this is very important, okay? This is very important that you, we all understand this. The Bible, your Bible reads, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. The Hebrew is this, but the Lord stood before Abraham. That's what the Hebrew says. The Lord stood before Abraham. Abraham. And the scribes who scribed the future translations of the Bible flipped this because they couldn't believe that God would put himself in a position where he would stand before Abraham, right? Like when you call your children, you say, come here. Your children come and stand before you, right? You're standing before your superior, right? You're standing before your superior. So Abraham stands before the Lord. But the Hebrew says the Lord stood before Abraham. The Lord switched the spots and the scribes lost their minds and so they switched it and our English Bibles do the same. But I'm one of those guys that's not afraid of his Bible. And I'm one of those guys that don't believe you edit the Bible. And I'm one of those guys that don't believe you switch the Bible. So the scribes were wrong and the commentators that do the exegetical work, they get this right. But then, they, then we struggle to find out what this means to see that God would put himself in the position of the inferior and let Abraham be the one who's who seems to be the superior. This is very, very interesting to see, but what, it, what it's saying to us is this, is that God, our God is willing to condescend to us. He's willing to condescend before us to throw everything at him that we can by way of these hard questions and prayers. So much so that he will switch places with Abraham here. It's absolutely amazing the condescension of our God. And it doesn't mean that somehow Abraham is superior to God. What it means is that God is taking this place in anticipation of the incarnation. He's taking this place. He's willing to do this. And also, I want you guys to know as we move into this, that this is, the this is very important. This is the first intercessory prayer in the Bible. Okay? This is the first time in the whole Bible that we see someone interceding for other people. This is the beginning of the long history of intercessory prayer in the church. This is vital. Up to this time, we have no record at all of anybody praying for someone else, interceding for someone else. This Abrahamic moment brings about an entire change in the way we relate to God. Not as children of Abraham. Now Abraham unfolds for us that we are to do what Pastor John did this morning. We are to pray for Haiti. We're to pray for Afghanistan. We're to pray for And the reason why we do that, and it comes so naturally to us, intercessory prayer is the normal thing for us. What you ladies did at your prayer meeting, you got intercessory prayer, is the normal, because it started here. And the question I ask is this, are we willing to press in like Abraham pressed in? Are we willing to imitate the prayer of Abraham? But notice this. Watch this. I love this. Because even though there's this little flip-flop between God put positions himself before Abraham, and even though Abraham is going to ask God some very hard questions in this prayer, Abraham never forgets who he is. 
Abraham never forgets who he is when he prays this prayer. Look at verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Look, guys, I'm speaking to God. Uh, how about dust and ashes? So even though the Lord switched places with him, it's not as though in Abraham's heart there's a switch of place, right? Abraham still knows who he is. He's before the Lord, and therefore I'm kind of dust and ashes here. He gets it. And then all the way throughout the rest of this, right, Abraham says, Lord, don't get mad. Don't get angry, right? Have you had your children sometimes ask you something 10 times, and by the 10th time, your top is popped, right? Um, uh, right? And so Abraham's like, hey, Lord, I'm, you know, please don't get mad. You know, he's, that's where he's going with it, but God never does. And this ought to tell us something, right? Ask me once, I didn't hear you. Ask me the second time, I possibly heard you. Ask me the third time I heard you and I never want to hear you again, right? I mean, you get it, right? I mean, but, but not God. Not, not our God, you see. And so Abraham opens up for us the heart of intercessory prayer here, but he doesn't forget who he is when he prays. But listen, even though he doesn't forget who he is when he prays, that doesn't cause him to not open the box of asking really, really hard questions to God, okay? He knows who he is. He knows who God is. He knows the covenant context. He knows the angst. He knows that God is going to be the one who always does right. So Abraham prays accordingly. Listen, church, Abraham prays as a friend of God to whom God is condescended to. He recognizes who he is. And he's banking on the righteousness of God. He's banking on the justice of God. He's banking on God's character, always being God's character. And so Abraham throws everything at it. Let's look at it. Verse 24. Verse 23, Abraham says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Listen, church, this is how you pray, okay? This is how you intercede for Afghanistan. This is how you intercede for Haiti. This is how you intercede for the United States of America. This is how you intercede for California. This is how you intercede for Ventura County. I want you to see exactly what it is that Abraham prays. He says this. Now look closely. Verse 24b. Will you then sweep away the place? In other words, God, will you sweep away all of Sodom? All of it. And all of Gomorrah and all the cities in the plain. And not spare it. Check it out. Spare the whole thing. Will you not spare the whole thing? Spare the whole city for the 50 righteous who are in it. In other words, Lord, if you, if you can find a remnant of righteous people in Sodom, a remnant, for their sake, and for their sake alone, will you go ahead and spare the whole city? Do we pray this way? Do we pray, Lord, for the, because there's a church in Haiti, 
Because, there's a, because the body of Christ is in Haiti. Because you have a remnant in Haiti, will, will, you not, will you not spare the whole city? Lord, because there's a church in Afghanistan, your body, a remnant of righteous people in Afghanistan, will you not spare the whole of Afghanistan for the sake of those, right, for the sake of those righteous who are there? Will you not do that? You see, Abraham is throwing everything at the character of the God who is the judge of all the earth who's going to do just. And then look at what God says. Verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I, watch this, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Notice that. If I find 50 righteous, if I find the church there, for their sake, I will spare the whole. You know, I know what you call this. God is giving us covenantal friendship leverage. That's what He's doing, right? How, do, how many times do we say this? Listen, please do this for me. Do it for me because you're my friend. Do it for me because you're my wife. Do it for me because you're, 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 you're a brother. We do that all the time. Not, not, not to ask people to do things they shouldn't do, but, but, but to press into things that we really, really need. And because of the nearness, we can leverage that. This is what Abraham is doing. He's taking up his covenantal relationship with God. The covenantal relationship that God, that he would believe that God would have with all those righteous that are actually in Sodom. God's actual righteous character. And he's saying, God, look, it's spare this because of them. You see. Do we pray this way? Do we think covenantally this way? Do we see God this way? That's the way our father did. It's the way our father Abraham did. And Abraham works his way all the way through this, you see. All the way down to what would constitute a city quorum at 10. And God, listen, church, God agrees with Abraham all the way. God agrees that if there are even 10 for their sake, if there's 20 for their sake, if there's 30 for their sake, you see. There, there was a time when the church had a more robust understanding of God's ways. And when the church actually believed that the righteous are the nation's keepers. That righteousness exalts a nation. There was a time in which we actually believed that. That's why people took raising their children in righteousness so seriously. Because of a transgenerational concern for grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the way on down as it related to the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. But listen, the nation 
This is very important. The nation takes on the character of the people. And the people take on the character of their God. So when God told Abraham to command your children in the way of the Lord, it, it meant command them to be like God because they're justified. And so we have to look out and, and acknowledge the fact that our nation bears the resemblance of our people. And our people bear the resemblance of our God. And as Greg Beale said, what we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. The church of Jesus Christ is in really bad shape right now. And the question is, where are we at it as solely church? Are we the justified that are pursuing righteousness and fleeing youthful lusts and commanding our children in the ways of the Lord and the ways of righteousness? Are we at solely church praying like Abraham prayed, Lord, for the sake of your church, for the sake of your bride, spare the city, spare California, Spare the nation, spare Afghanistan, spare Haiti, Lord, for the sake of your church. Your body is there, Lord. Your church is there. Are we approaching God the way our father Abraham approached God in the first intercessory prayer? Is this who we are and how we are doing it? i got to bring this to a close. Well, how did it all turn out? Well, there, there, there weren't ten. <laughs> but there was God. So listen. Chapter 19 and verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen to this, God remembered Abraham. Did you hear that? Abraham's prayer did not go unanswered. <laughs> did you hear that? Abraham's prayer did not go unanswered. It just got answered differently. Okay? But it didn't go unanswered. God remembered Abraham. It doesn't mean that God was like, oh, that Abraham guy, I had forgotten. No, no, no. In the Bible, when God remembers something, he's bringing it to the front and acting on it. God doesn't forget like we do, right? God doesn't have a to-do list every day like I do, because if I didn't have a to-do list, forget about it. Everything would be forgotten, right? God, God, when God remembers something, he's bringing the covenantal promise back in front of him, and he's acting on it, which is why we do the Lord's Supper every week, because God's bringing the emblems of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he's acting on it when we celebrate the table. Amen? Okay, so God remembered, uh, 1929, God remembered Abraham and, now listen, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. At the end of the day, we don't have 10 righteous, but we do have this guy named Lot. 
And you read his story and you're like, how did this brother, how's the New Testament called Lot righteous? I don't know. God calls you righteous. I'm just saying. Um, but Lot, 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 Lot's not the, the best looking dude in the, in the Bible. But guess what? He has the righteousness of faith. So God saves him and two other people in his family. Remember, his wife looks back. So the prayer got answered, not by God saving the city, but by God taking the tiny church out of the city, right? Still answered the prayer. Listen, church, will not the judge of the earth do, the judge of all the earth, do what is just? He will. The question for us is, Will we throw everything on his character and keep throwing everything on his character in prayer like Abraham did until the city is saved because of the church or the church is saved out of the city? Amen? Let us be that church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take your word, even my own warts and foibles of the sermon, if too much of myself got into it, Lord, forgive me for that and take that away. But may the power, authority, and clarity of your word come home to this congregation today. And may, may we be those who follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham in Jesus' name.